everyone. Thanks for tuning in to EB Medicine's podcast, Amplify. I'm Sam Mishu, and I'm so excited to be speaking to you today. We are going to be hitting the highlights of the October 2019 Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice Issue on Bronchiolitis. And please don't feel pressure to commit to memory anything I'm about to say. It's all spelled out in the issue, but it is also summarized for you to use at the bedside in a point-of-care reference at adminem.com. More on that later. First, it is that season, and this issue could not have come at a better time. But before we begin, I'd like to say a special thanks to Drs. Madeline Joseph and Amy Edwards at the University of Florida College of Medicine, Jacksonville campus. What an incredible job they did reviewing all the evidence. And by all, I mean over 200 articles, Cochrane reviews, and other organizational guidelines published from 1979 to today. Talk about exhaustive. So let's begin with a little background, which will come as no surprise to most of you. Bronchiolitis is the most common lower respiratory tract infection in children less than two years old. Actually, more than 100,000 children under the age of one are hospitalized in the U.S. annually for lower respiratory tract infections, and RSV is the leading cause. Again, probably not a surprise to most of you, but an interesting number nevertheless. Bronchiolitis is a clinical diagnosis, and we all know that, but this lack of a formal definition provides a little bit of a conundrum when we're reviewing the evidence. One of the biggest stumbling blocks that the writers of this particular issue noted was that the lack of a standardized international definition for bronchiolitis, and it's probably the most common, it's really a series of symptoms. In infants, it includes rhinitis, tachypnea, wheezing, cough, crackles, use of accessory muscles or nasal flaring. And really, Children over the age of one presenting with similar symptoms are often diagnosed with something else, something like reactive airway disease, wheezing, asthma, pneumonia, and it's less likely to be bronchiolitis. So keep in mind, a set of those symptoms in a child under the age of one is currently about the best of what we have to define bronchiolitis. The pathophysiology is interesting if you're kind of a pathophysiology geek like me. So viral infections of the smaller airways increase mucus secretions, cause some cell death and sloughing, and peribronchiolar lymphocytic infiltrate, which leads to edema. And all of this really results in narrowing and obstruction of these bronchioles, causing hypoxia from ventilatory mismatch. Interestingly enough, I'm just going to quote the authors of this publication when they say, quote, the degree of obstruction may vary as mucus is cleared, causing rapidly changing clinical presentation, confounding an accurate assessment of the severity of the illness. Now, that's a fantastic way to put it. Basically, the more mucus you clear, the better the exam gets, but it's coming right back pretty soon. And so moment to moment, oxygen saturations, respiratory distress, work of breathing, all of these things can change. Smooth muscle constriction, interestingly, does not seem to have much of a role in bronchiolitis, which explains the lack of response to things like bronchodilators. And when we start to talk about recovery and how long that's going to take, it is interesting to note that the pulmonary epithelial cells recover in about three to four days, and the cilia, those little finger-like protrusions from the cells that beat to clear mucus, regenerate in about two weeks. 
And so the median duration of illness in bronchiolitis is about 12 days in children who are less than two years old. 18% are still going to be symptomatic at three weeks, and 9% are still going to be symptomatic at four weeks. What a frustratingly long disease. RSV, that's respiratory syncytial virus, accounts for somewhere between 50 to 80% of the cases in children under two, depending on which source you're looking at. It's typically peaking in the late fall through March in the U.S. But there is a second player here, one that some of you may not have heard much about called human metanumovirus. And it accounts, again, for somewhere between 3 to 19% of the cases, depending on the source you're looking at. And it has a similar seasonal variation to RSV. So as you're looking to these children and testing them for RSV and becoming frustrated because they seem like they have bronchiolitis, but they're RSV negative, this is another player to keep in mind. Now, these are just the two most common. There are multiple other viruses, parainfluenza, influenza, adenoviruses, coronaviruses, rhinoviruses, and even enteroviruses. And again, another geeky fact, rhinoviruses actually play a larger role in asthma. That's more like the common cold. But I digress. Is it possible to have more than one infection at the same time? Absolutely. In fact, one study cited in the publication showed that in children under five with RSV, a co-infection was present somewhere around 6% of the time. And another one found in children less than two, co-infection could be present 41% of the time. So testing positive for one virus does not actually exclude the presence of any others. Now, this may lead you to ask the question, well, if you are infected with more than one virus, then are you at increased risk for poor outcome, admission to the hospital, mechanical ventilation, hypoxia, and respiratory distress? And the answer is maybe. There's a little conflicting evidence here. One of the articles cited actually showed if you had RSV and human metanumovirus co-infection, you had a 10-time increase in the risk of mechanical ventilation, but this didn't really hold up in other studies, and so it's a little difficult to draw a conclusion there. Now, I'm going to pause here and just make a quick admission. I am no pediatric emergency medicine expert, and so one of my favorite parts of this issue is the differential diagnosis, which in most cases, is really just a list of other diseases that a child might have. But these authors took the time to actually give you examples of the presentation and some of the nuances that might clue you in to one of the other disease processes. So I'm just going to review this for a couple of minutes. The emergent causes that are listed in the differential diagnosis include things like pneumonia, chlamydia, pertussis, foreign body aspirations, or esophageal foreign bodies, and then some of the more subtle things, cardiac anomalies, congestive heart failure, vascular rings, allergic reactions, and bronchopulmonary dysplasia. But they also gave us a list of non-emergent causes, things like tracheoesophageal fistulas, bronchogenic cysts, laryngotracheomalacia, gastroesophageal reflux disease, mediastinal masses, even cystic fibrosis. And if you're like me, you're thinking, well, exactly how am I supposed to differentiate these things? And this is the golden jewel, I think, of this issue. So wheezing, it says, is a hallmark of bronchiolitis, but the differential is broad. So vomiting, wheezing, 
and coughing can be associated with reflux disease. Good. Wheezing associated with position changes can be associated with tracheomalacia or great vessel anomalies. Interesting. Wheezing exacerbated by flexion of the neck and relieved by extension or hyperextension of the neck can be associated with vascular rings. And multiple respiratory tract infections and failure to thrive as a history might lead you to suspect cystic fibrosis or immunodeficiency. Then there's the heart abnormalities. So wheezing with a heart murmur or with cardiomegaly or cyanosis or exertion or sweating with feeding should make you think about heart failure and congenital heart diseases. And lastly, the sudden onset of wheezing and choking should lead you to suspect possible foreign bodies. I love that. I love that little list, and I love that abbreviated description of the clinical presentation for some of these alternative diagnoses. So what does the treatment for these children look like? In the pre-hospital setting, it's not a whole lot, really. It's some vital signs, it's oxygen saturation, and supplemental oxygen as needed. In the ED, we've got several things. We're going to tackle these one at a time, but we have risk factors for severe bronchiolitis, and we have risk factors for apnea, two separate lists, both of which are pertinent when we're discussing disposition of our patient. Again, please don't commit any of this to memory unless you really want to. There is a reference for all of these in the issue and in the point of care summary. So risk factors for severe bronchiolitis are age 6 to 12 weeks or less, a history of prematurity, that's 35 to 37 weeks gestation, underlying respiratory illnesses such as bronchopulmonary dysplasia, significant congenital heart disease, immunodeficiency, HIV, organ or bone marrow transplantation, or congenital immune deficiencies, altered mentation, which can sometimes be a sign of impending respiratory failure, dehydration due to inability to tolerate oral fluids, ill appearance, oxygen saturation less than 90%, respiratory rate greater than 70 breaths per minute, increased work of breathing, nasal flaring, and grunting. That's all the risk factors for severe bronchiolitis. Risk factors for apnea are full-term birth and age less than a month, preterm, that's less than 37 weeks, and age less than two months, history of apnea or prematurity, emergency department presentation with apnea, or apnea witnessed by a caregiver. So interesting to note that most of the risk factors for apnea are actually having had it, either as a history or in the emergency department or witnessed by a caregiver. And once we're done obtaining a history, then we turn to some diagnostics. And are these things actually helpful? If we start with x-ray, it turns out that radiographs actually increase the likelihood that a physician is going to give antibiotics, even if the x-ray is negative. Several studies have looked at this, and it's rather strange, but normal x-rays, just the mere fact that we've ordered one, make us more likely to treat with antibiotics. So routine radiography is discouraged in all of the guidelines, but in severe disease, so that's the people with severe bronchiolitis, it can be helpful. And if you have foreign body in the differential, it can be very helpful. What about viral testing? Is this necessary to make the diagnosis? Certainly not. Bronchiolitis is a clinical diagnosis. Is it 
helpful to have viral testing? Well, maybe, depending on the clinical scenario. Let's look at a couple of examples that were in this particular issue. If you have a young child with a fever and you're looking for the source of the fever, then yes, having some kind of positive viral test can impact further workup of fever or search for serious bacterial infection, and that's listed in the 2016 ASEP fever guidelines. And here it's interesting to note once again that in infants who are less than 28 days old, serious bacterial infection rate is high, even in patients with bronchiolitis. So up to 10% of patients who are RSV positive and up to 14% of patients who are RSV negative still have some kind of serious bacterial infection. So standard fever evaluation is still recommended for those infants less than 28 days old. For the infants in the 28 to 60 day category, spontaneous bacterial infection rates are not as bad. Not zero, mind you. They're still 5.5% for those that are RSV positive and 11.7% in those that are RSV negative. But interestingly, all of these were UTIs. So urinalysis is the only other recommended test in this age group, even if they are RSV positive. And now that we're past testing, what are our options for treatment? We'll start with some of the basics, oxygen. The recommended oxygen saturation to maintain is 90% or higher. Now, you can choose to use continuous pulse oximetry, but the guidelines say that's purely up to you. It's recommended by some low-level evidence and just some rational reasoning, but it's certainly not mandatory. IV fluids are actually encouraged to combat dehydration. And if you'll remember, that's one of those risk factors for severe bronchiolitis, dehydration or inability to feed. So giving IV fluids until respiratory distress and the tachypnea have resolved is encouraged. What about suctioning? We tell everybody to suction. I'm telling the mom to put the bulb syringe in there. We're doing it in the emergency department. We're doing everything we can to remove mucus. But Interestingly, the routine use of deep suctioning, we're putting that in quotes, deep suctioning, may actually not be beneficial and in some cases has been shown to be harmful if you're doing it repetitively. Nasal suction is encouraged, especially for those with respiratory distress or those who have poor feeding or sleeping. So yes, continue the nasal suction, but be a little leery about this deep suctioning. Bronchodilators. We all love our bronchodilators. I love giving the nebulizer treatments, but in this particular setting, it's generally not recommended for routine use. Now, there are a couple of caveats here, and they're important ones. So you may find it beneficial in those with severe bronchiolitis. So the guidelines actually say you might, might consider trialing bronchodilators in severe bronchiolitis only because these patients were mostly excluded in studies. And if they have a history of prior wheezing and prior bronchodilator use, you might consider that again. And also, if there's a family history of atopy or asthma in older infants, then you might consider use of bronchodilators. Otherwise, just the general routine use of bronchodilators in bronchiolitis is generally not recommended because this is a disease that does not respond to bronchodilators. Now, what about anticholinergic agents. This is that ipratropium bromide, or atrovent, if you're used to using the trade name. There's really no evidence for this in the literature to be beneficial in bronchiolitis. So again, not recommended. Corticosteroids. 
Now, again, the authors did a fantastic job. You've got the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, you've got a Cochrane review, and you even have a large PCARN study, all recommending against the use of steroids. So finding no evidence that they actually show an improvement. Now, they did make note that one small study of about 70 patients found benefit of using about a milligram per kilogram of oral dexamethasone but they followed it with 0.6 milligrams per kilogram daily for five days. And that study was pretty small and had an increased prevalence of family history of asthma and atopy in the family. So the recommendation still remains against its use in first-time wheezers with bronchiolitis. All right, so those are the most common, but there are a few others that you may not have heard about, racemic epinephrine being one of them, there is no recommendation for its use, just in case you were thinking about it. Racemic epinephrine plus oral dexamethasone, there was actually a fairly large pediatric emergency research Canadian trial at eight different pediatric emergency departments, which had about 800 infants between the ages of six weeks and 12 months with bronchiolitis. And they found that a combination of epinephrine, racemic epinephrine, and dexamethasone demonstrated a lower admission rate over seven days than a placebo group. This was, you know, about a 5% absolute risk reduction from 26.4% to 17.1%. Unfortunately, it wasn't statistically significant, so really the conclusion here was further study is needed. Hypertonic saline is another one of the therapies that was mentioned in the issue, and the American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines don't really recommend its use in the emergency department but they did make note that clinicians can utilize this in the inpatient setting. And interestingly enough, in evidence of supporting this recommendation, they cited the Cochrane reviews. There were two of them in 2013 and 2017, and they did find some benefit in the inpatient setting. But there are some conflicting publications. One specifically said it might make cough worse. So again, not recommended for routine use in the emergency department. Lastly, there are some respiratory support therapies that you might consider, one of them being high-flow nasal cannula oxygen. Several small pediatric ICU studies have shown a benefit in severe cases of bronchiolitis, but there's been no large ED randomized trial. So right now, there's no specific recommendation for or against its use, but interestingly, the study protocols that were reviewed included some weight-based or some age-based flow rates. So check with your pediatric ICU and with your respiratory therapist before the first time you use this so you're familiar with how much oxygen you're going to be delivering through one of these high-flow nasal cannula setups. And then lastly, nasal CPAP. This does show benefit in the ICU setting, but evidence like high-flow nasal cannula is still limited for routine use in the emergency department. And now we move on to the age-old question, what do we do with the patient? That is, the disposition. Are we going to admit them? Are we going to send them home? Are we going to have to sit on them and observe them for another four to six hours? And again, an excellent summary in the article. There's a nice list of things that should make you consider admitting the patient. Things like risk for apnea or risk for severe bronchiolitis. Those were the lists we reviewed earlier. And again, didn't have to commit those to memory. Respiratory distress, particularly if it's interfering with feeding hypoxia with a saturation less than 90%, decreased feeding or dehydration, and they make special note of an unreliable caregiver. And they clump this together, so this is if you're unable to ensure patient care at home or 
appropriate 24 or 48-hour follow-up, whatever it is you're asking the parents to do, then that's actually a reasonable consideration for admission as well. And they make a special stipulation that all patients with severe bronchiolitis should be admitted. And that's it. A truly packed publication with so many excellent points. Thanks again to Drs. Joseph and Edwards, and thank you for listening. If you have questions or thoughts you'd like to share with us, we encourage you to log on to ebmedicine.net and share that with us there. And if you're standing at the bedside and recalling that you heard me today, but not remembering what I said, you can see the point of care summary by going to admin-em.com and clicking on point of care. Such a pleasure to be talking to you today. Until next time, I'm Sam Michelle.